Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. This upcoming Sunday, the 16th of May, is the UNESCO International Day of Light. And so this podcast is dedicated to the humble photon and all the amazing physics and technology that it makes possible. Coming up, we'll hear from Colin Danson of the UK's Orion Laser Facility, which is in the world's top 10 for energy and power. And I'll also be chatting with my Physics World colleagues about some exciting light-related research that we've covered recently in Physics World. But first, I talked to an astronomer about fascinating objects called brown dwarfs, and also about what light means to her as a scientist. The beauty of science is that nothing is clear-cut. Stars and planets are different things, but what about the objects that are too small to be stars, yet too large to be planets? To chat about these in-betweeners, I'm joined down the line from Canada by the astronomer Megan Tannock. She is in her final year of a PhD at the University of Western Ontario, where she studies the atmospheres of brown dwarfs. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Uh, good morning, or I guess good afternoon where you are. Uh, it's nice to be here. Megan, what exactly is a brown dwarf, and, and why have the objects captured your imagination? Brown dwarfs are these very interesting, but not really well-known astronomical objects. Um, as you mentioned in your introduction, they're objects which are somewhere between a planet and a star. And most people are pretty familiar with what a planet and a star is, the simplest description being that planets are small and they orbit stars. And stars are big burning balls of gas. Um, but to quantify this, there's actually a criterion based on mass to help us determine whether it's a planet or a star. So anything smaller than about 13 times the mass of Jupiter is actually considered a planet. And anything larger than about 80 times the mass of Jupiter is considered a star. And why 13 and 80? Well, the number 13 times the mass of Jupiter is special because that marks the mass beyond which it's possible to fuse deuterium, which is a type of heavy hydrogen, uh, in the core of the object. And 80 times the mass of Jupiter is special because beyond 80 times the mass of Jupiter, hydrogen fusion can take place. So objects in this deuterium burning 13 to 80 times the mass of Jupiter range are called brown dwarfs. And brown dwarfs are very special because they share a lot of properties with both planets and stars. So you can kind of study them from the point of view of planets or stars, or neither as their own unique, interesting objects. Um, in particular, they make really good laboratories for studying gas giant planets uh, because they're so similar, but often they're much more accessible than gas giant planets, which can be hard to see with a big, bright star right next to them. Um, and I study brown dwarfs because, as you said, I'm very interested in their atmospheres. Um, they have really complicated atmospheres with all sorts of interesting molecules. They can have really complex cloud structures with storms, uh, and they actually have weather on their surfaces. And, and brown dwarfs must be very dim compared to stars. How, how do you find them and, and then study them? Yeah, uh, compared to stars, brown dwarfs are pretty dim. Um, as I said, they don't fuse hydrogen, so they're not generating a ton of energy like a star is, uh, but they're still warm. Uh, their atmospheres have temperatures of hundreds to even thousands of degrees, so they give off a lot of light in the infrared. Um, 
And when we study them, we look where the light is in the infrared. So for all of my work, I use cameras and detectors which operate at near and mid-infrared wavelengths. Um, and as far as discovering them, usually they're found in large surveys. Astronomers will take uh, big pictures of large areas of the sky at a few different wavelengths and then look at the relative brightnesses of all the objects in different wavelengths. And we call this difference in brightness color. Uh, so different types of objects have different colors. The sun, for example, is a lot brighter at optical wavelengths than it is at infrared wavelengths. Um, but brown dwarves are faint at optical wavelengths and bright at infrared wavelengths, so sort of the opposite. So that means that they have very different color values. So after you identify and sort all of the different objects in the survey and determine their different colors, you would want to do a spectroscopic follow-up to confirm what you're looking at. So you would pick out all of the ones that meet the color criteria for a brown dwarf, take a spectrum, and brown dwarfs have really interesting spectra. Um, so it's easy to see right away whether, why they are different from stars. Um, brown dwarfs may be hot compared to Earth. Like I said, they could be on the order of thousands of degrees, but they're really cool compared to stars. So that means uh, that molecules can form in their atmospheres. Um, which make for really interesting spectra. When you see the signatures of molecules in your spectrum, you know you've got a brown dwarf and not a star or something. Um, I also wanted to add that since they are so faint, all of the ones that I study and all of the ones that astronomers have studied in great detail are actually fairly close by, uh, like within 100 light years or so. So for context, the Milky Way galaxy is around 100,000 light years wide. So we're really looking at it like a very local sample when we study brown dwarves. Um, but they are incredibly numerous. Uh, we expect that brown dwarves actually number in the tens of billions to maybe even 100 billion in the Milky Way galaxy alone. Uh, but we can really only access these ones that are close by because they're dim. And your research um, has focused recently on the rotation of brown dwarfs. How, how do you measure the spin of, of such an object? And, and what does that measurement tell you? So we look for weather uh, on the surfaces of brown dwarfs. Um, as I mentioned before, brown dwarf atmospheres contain molecules. And these molecules make up really complicated clouds on the surfaces of brown dwarfs. Um, in fact, I should probably describe quickly what a brown dwarf actually looks like, since it might be hard to picture something that's not quite a planet and not quite a star. You might be wondering uh, what that looks like. Oh, definitely. Um, Go ahead, Jack. <laughs> so brown dwarves look a lot like Jupiter. Uh, they have spots like Jupiter's great red spot, uh, which we know is a massive, massive storm. Um, and the storms on brown dwarves vary greatly in number and size, uh, but you can picture them as kind of being like Jupiter's great red spot. And brown dwarves also have banding like Jupiter, like the stripes that go all the way, the, all the way around Jupiter. Um, and these surface features, the spots, the storms, the banding, um, are how I measure spins. Uh, these, these surface features all vary in brightness. Um, again, if you picture Jupiter's great red spot, it's darker than the other parts of the planet. So depending on whether the spot is facing us, it will look fainter than if the planet is totally turned around and the spot is out of view on the other side of the planet, it's going to look brighter. So what we do is we stare at brown dwarves for a really long time and look for variability in the brightness due to these surface features rotating in and out of view. Um, the measure of brightness over time is called the light curve. And if we see a repeated pattern in the light curve, we're seeing the same surface features as they rotate in and out of view. So if it's periodic, we can actually measure the rotation period um, or the spin. 
so we're measuring these rotation periods to look for different types of trends. Um, we want to answer questions like, uh, do they all spin fast or do they all spin slow or do the old ones spin faster than the young ones? Um, stuff like that. And we can also see the effects of the spin uh, in the spectra that we measure through the Doppler effect. So it's good to know that this effect is present before you try to measure sort of any other properties. So, so how do you know that you're not seeing a, a transiting exoplanet? Or are these objects too small to have um, exoplanets of their own? Oh, this is a great question with sort of two different layers. So the way we know we're not seeing an exo, a transiting exoplanet is because the shape in the light curve is going to be quite different. Um, the timescales are also going to be different. So when a, when a planet transits in front of a star, uh, in the light curve, you see this sort of like boxy dip in, in the light curve, um, whereas the dips from these storms and bands on brown dwarfs tend to be more sinusoidal in shape. So uh, it's, the light curves look like a bunch of sine waves sort of stacked up on each other as opposed to more like a flat line with a square dip in it. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more, I think, later about the uh, rotation periods, like what sort of numbers um, the rotation periods are, but they tend to be on the order of hours, whereas uh, the rotation of a planet would be more on the scale of like days. Um, so they don't have the same time scales. And as far as the second part of your question about uh, whether planets would even orbit these things, that is a really, really cool question. We think, yes but we haven't discovered any yet so far. So like I said before, brown dwarves are this really cool intermediate object that shares properties with both planet and a star. They actually form in the same way as stars from the collapse of giant molecular cloud. So there can be a lot of debris left over that can form a debris disk around a brown dwarf. And we've actually detected such disks. And from those disks, a planet could form. We haven't detected any planets orbiting brown dwarfs yet, but there's a trend with stars where the smaller the star is, there tends to be um, more numerous uh, and more abundant planets around those stars. So we expect that this trend continues into brown dwarfs. Uh, we have every reason to believe that planets exist there. We just haven't detected any yet. Okay, well, you know what the next question is going to be on this is, um, could you have a, a, a habitable zone planet around uh, a, a brown dwarf, uh, an exoplanet where life could exist? Or is that just a, a, a crazy thought? Yeah, I love this question. Um, the, the answer is yes. Uh, so the habitable zone is a region around a star, or in this case, a brown dwarf, where the temperature is such that liquid water could exist on a planet that's present. And brown dwarfs do have uh, a region around them where uh, the temperatures uh, meet this criteria. It's just going to be a lot closer in to the brown dwarf than, say, a star. Um, but the problem with this, the interesting thing about this, is that brown dwarfs actually cool over time. So if you have a planet that is presently in a region where liquid water could exist, in the past, the brown dwarf was warmer. So it was actually too hot for the liquid water to exist. And in the future, the brown dwarf will cool more. So the planet will then later be too cool for liquid water. So yes, there could be a habitable zone, but it's not going to be a very desirable place uh, to, to live unless you get the timing right. And you might have to bring the water with you because it could have evaporated uh, in, in the past when it was hotter. Um, that's a great question. It's a fun one. 
So, Megan, you and your colleagues have discovered three new brown dwarfs that are rotating at record speeds. Do you think that you've observed an upper limit on spin? Yeah. Um, so we have what we have discovered is three brown dwarves with rotation periods of just one hour, which is crazy fast. Um, if we return to our Jupiter comparison for just a second, um, brown dwarves actually have this very convenient property that they're all approximately the same size. Uh, they all have about the same diameter as Jupiter. They're just a lot heavier, a lot denser, but they're all about the same diameter as Jupiter. And Jupiter's rotation period is nine hours and 55 minutes, so about 10 hours. Um, so that's already, you know, a lot faster than Earth with our rotation period of 24 hours. But these three brown dwarves that uh, we discovered are going 10 times faster than Jupiter. Um, so to throw a couple more numbers at you, if you were standing on the equator of this thing, that would be equivalent to going a velocity of 100 kilometers per second or 360,000 kilometers an hour. And yeah, it's it's incredibly fast. If you were standing on the equator of Earth, um, just from Earth's rotation of twenty uh, rotation period of twenty four hours, you would only be going one thousand seven hundred kilometers an hour. So these things are just going insanely fast. And brown dwarves, uh, in general, tend to rotate uh, reasonably quickly. They tend to have rotation periods on the order of two to ten hours. Sometimes they're slower. Uh, in the case of these three, it's a lot faster. Um, but in general, they're rotating faster than Jupiter, and these three uh, have rotation periods of just one hour, so they're really fast. And then the second part of your question, do we think we found a limit on the spin? Um, yes, we think that we have found a limit on the rotation. And this is because the three brown dwarfs, other than their rotation period, they have very different properties. Um, I mentioned before that as brown dwarves age, they cool because they don't fuse hydrogen like a star. Uh, and to conserve angular momentum, they actually end up spinning up as they shrink down. So one might expect that most of the old or the cold brown dwarves would actually be going the fastest. Uh, but we don't see a trend in rotation period or speed uh, with age or temperature. And of the three very fast rotators, the three um, one-hour rotation period brown dwarfs that we have discovered, one is quite young and hot, one is older and cold, and one is sort of in the middle in terms of temperature and age, yet they all have rotation periods of just one hour. Um, so another reason we think that we found a limit is because the theory says that brown dwarfs should actually be able to rotate even faster, down to about 20 minutes before they get torn apart by centripetal forces. Uh, but we don't see anything between like close to 20 minutes. Um, around 80 brown dwarves have measured rotation periods, and they all just sort of stop at one hour, even though the theory um, we currently have says they should go faster. So something is stopping them. We have a big enough sample that we believe we haven't just missed these ultra short period brown dwarves. Uh, we think that something is preventing brown dwarves from actually rotating faster and getting to the point where they could be torn apart by centripetal forces. Um, and that is really the next mystery in this research that's going to have to be solved. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of theory work that needs to be done, studying maybe the interiors of brown dwarves, maybe looking at magnetic fields. Uh, so in my research, I tend to stick to the, the exteriors of these objects. I look at their atmospheres. I don't know a whole lot about the interiors, but they're really complicated. Um, as I said before, brown dwarves are all kind of the same. Uh, they're, they're all the same size. 
but they all are quite dense and heavy compared to Jupiter. So there's this interesting thing about brown dwarves where if you add more mass, they don't actually get bigger, they get denser. Um, and that has to do with the really unique material that is inside of them. So they're are all these complicated molecules in the atmosphere on the outside, but the inside is hot and composed of hydrogen, um, specifically electron degenerate hydrogen. Um, it's very convective. There are strong magnetic fields. Um, the, the hydrogen inside of these brown dwarfs is probably more like a metallic hydrogen, uh, which I don't actually know a ton about myself. But um, anyway, it's this very complicated matter that we don't fully understand all of the properties of yet. So that could be the answer to why we're seeing a rotation limit, but we really don't know. I'm kind of just speculating at this point. Wow, that's really interesting. So it sounds like um, even there's a bit of uh, condensed matter physics in there, because I know that, uh, you know, condensed matter physicists are really interested in, uh, in creating metallic hydrogen in the lab by, by squeezing it to, I suppose, the sort of pressures that you would have in, uh, in brown dwarfs. So it's, uh, it looks like it could be a, a multidisciplinary sort of activity to, 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 to find out what's going on inside. Yes, absolutely. We're going to need the help of um, condensed matter physicists. We're going to need, I think, more theory. We're going to need more experiments. Uh, it's all really exciting. So, Megan, th this Sunday, the 16th of May, is the UNESCO International Day of Light. And, of course, light is, is crucial in your work as, as an astronomer. What does light mean to you as a, as a professional astronomer? Uh, this is such an exciting question. Light is the number one way that we get information from space. Uh, I mean, sometimes other particles will come along, but photons are absolutely number one. Um, photons and light, that's how we get information from space. Um, astronomers actually sometimes affectionately call our telescopes uh, light buckets. I believe every professor I've ever had in astronomy has made that joke about uh, telescopes are just light buckets. But I think it's you know not only a cute description, but it's a very accurate description. We're really, astronomers are really just collecting different flavors of light and using it to understand the universe. Uh, without light, astronomy wouldn't be possible at all. Uh, I mean, maybe there's some very clever people who could find ways to do something with math and theory, but without seeing the night sky, I have a hard time imagining how or even why someone would do this. Um, so I think without light, astronomy wouldn't exist. And for me personally, being an astronomer and working with light is so cool. I feel like I get to be a detective slash superhero. Astronomers, we don't just see the universe in visual light like our eyes can see. We get to see all of it from radio waves to gamma rays, the entire electromagnetic spectrum, everything in between, just an infinite amount of colors. So we have like super sight. We also get to be time travelers uh, because light moves at a constant speed. So it takes time for light to arrive at our telescope. So we see the universe as it looked like in the past. Um, and I think the coolest tool that I use to study light is spectroscopy. I, I find it absolutely amazing that I can measure, you know, how much light we get at different wavelengths. And then from that, I can tell you everything from how fast this thing is rotating uh, to what molecules are in its atmosphere, to what it weighs and how old it is, all from a few photons. Like, that's so cool. So you mentioned in uh, when you contacted me that you wanted to discuss uh, this day of light. So I asked some of my colleagues um, what, what they thought about light and what they thought about this, this day of light. 
And they had some really interesting answers. Um, one of which that I liked the most was that for all of the interesting things we can learn from light, uh, sometimes it's actually the absence of light that is the most interesting. Um, so when you take a picture of the night sky, an area that's you know seemingly devoid of stars could actually be a dust cloud that's blocking your line of sight. Um, or in my work, a dip in a spectrum uh, could be due to a molecule like you know water or something absorbing light. And I did go onto the UNESCO uh, website to have a look about uh, what exactly it meant um, this this day of light and what it stood for. And one of the things it says is that uh, this day is a call to strengthen scientific cooperation. And you know, we were just talking about maybe there's a possibility for some interdisciplinary work um, with the the research that um, me and my team have done recently. I also feel like astronomy can really embody this just in general. I think sometimes people think of an astronomer as being a scientist on top of a mountain all alone looking at the night sky. But astronomy is made up of really diverse international collaborations. Um, All of the telescopes that I use for my research are funded and maintained by international collaborations. And the discovery and confirmation of these three fast rotators uh, that I've just been discussing wasn't just me alone in an office. Um, It was me working with 10 other astronomers from different institutions spread across three countries and two continents. Um, So astronomy really isn't possible without cooperation. So I really like that that's part of what uh, what this day stands for. And I had just one more thought on light. I feel like if we're talking about light, it's really important to talk about light pollution. Um, And it's a problem that doesn't just affect us by, you know, not being able to see stars from bright city cores. It can actually affect our circadian rhythms and cause sleep issues. So people might think it's a non-issue, but it's really important. It also affects animals and insects that, you know, rely on day-night cycles to live their lives, or maybe they use the sun and moon to navigate. So, I mean, I'm not an expert on light pollution, but I think it's important to think about. And something we can do to prevent light pollution is to ensure that we don't have any extra unnecessary lights on, um, or if we have to have lights outside to ensure that they're you know, only pointing where they're supposed to be pointing, so not upwards, for example. So you could put like a shade uh, on outdoor lights to prevent unnecessary light leaking upwards. Again, thank you for asking this question. I I feel like it's a really broad, open-ended question with so many cool things to talk about. Um, I hope that my train of thought there along just light is uh, <laughs> is interesting for the for the listeners. Oh, definitely, yeah. And I hope uh, I hope you enjoy the uh, the International Day of Light on the sixteenth. Thanks for being on the podcast, Megan. And I hope that the rest of your PhD goes well. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm defending later this year. So it's going to be a very, very busy few months for me trying to finish up my thesis. Um, But this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Good stuff. You can read more about the study by Megan and colleagues about rotating brown dwarfs on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Spinning Brown Dwarfs Might Have Reached Their Speed Limit. Orion is the most powerful laser in the UK, and it's used both for developing nuclear weapons and for scientific research. In the upcoming interview, Physics World's Tammy Freeman talks to a physicist who uses the laser to study plasmas and also manages academic access to the facility. 
I'm speaking today with Colin Danson, Distinguished Scientist in the Plasma Physics Group at AWE, a UK Defence Research Facility. Colin is also the Academic Access Manager for the Orion Laser Facility, the UK's most powerful laser. Hello, Colin. Hi, Tammy. So much of your research has been on high-powered lasers. Now, what makes a laser high power? What, what sort of output powers are we talking about? That's a very interesting question. We've, I think it's worth putting it into context because we're talking about huge powers, in fact, petawatt powers. Now, a traditional gas or coal-fired power station produces about a gigawatt of power. So we're talking about a million times the power generated from a power station. But the difference is a power station continually generates its power. A laser can operate for very, very short periods of time. So we're talking about extremes here. And when we talk about these timescales, we're talking about picoseconds. Now, picoseconds are a millionth millionth of a second. So as I say, we're talking about huge powers over very, very short periods of time. Okay, um, and what sort of applications can these high-power lasers be used for? Many of the applications are associated with understanding matter in extreme conditions. So when you focus these lasers down to focal spots of a few microns, they can generate temperatures of millions of degrees centigrade and also very high densities. So we're looking at matter that doesn't exist on Earth at all. So these uh, are prevalent in uh, laboratory astrophysics. So, for instance, at the center of stars or the center of giant planets. And even those conditions uh, achieved during supernova explosions. As I said, you're, you're academic access manager for the Orion high power laser. Can you tell me specifically about this laser and how it works? Yes. Yeah, so Orion is in the top 10 lasers in the world in terms of energy and power. So we have to take both into account. And what I mean by that is for energy, we generate 10 beams of long pulses, as we call them. These are nanosecond pulses, so a thousand times longer than the picosecond pulses. And those 10 long pulses, we can focus to target and we can uh, generate very, very extreme conditions. We also have two petawatt beam lines, and those can be used for either interactions or for diagnostic purposes. Okay, so I mean, how's your research group using this laser for your um, plasma physics studies? Well, we just want to understand material in extreme conditions. And as I mentioned, you know, those those found outside the Earth's environment. And so matter in extreme conditions um, occurs uh, throughout the universe, and it's a fundamental uh, research activity. Orion is also available for other academics to use. Um, What sort of experiments are they performing? So we've had an academic access programme open to the UK community for eight years now. And so we've done a whole range of experiments. And these cover things like fusion. Um, So you can generate laser-driven fusion um, with these type of lasers. Now, we can't achieve fusion yet, but we're doing the research associated with that. 
Also associated with laboratory astrophysics, we've done a number of experiments uh, from the uh, supernova interactions to understanding those conditions at the centre of giant planets like Jupiter. Looking more generally at high-power laser research, um, I I presume there's other such um, facilities around the world? Are there many? Yes, I I did a global review of uh, and had it published in 2019. And this was a very interesting insight into the global state of lasers. And we looked at what we called petawatt class lasers. So these are from uh, 200 terawatts through to multi-petawatt facilities. And they range from the facilities like Orion, which are in national laboratories in throughout the world, to large benchtop systems, which are uh, available within the university environment. And so we found about 50 of these facilities around the world. And that's those are summarized in that review paper. Okay, so there's a, a lot of research going on with the with high power lasers. Um what's next? I mean, how how are you sort of advancing laser technology? Um, are they working to develop even more high powered lasers? And what could you do with them if, if this was achieved? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, it's a very interesting question and very timely actually, because um the world is at a, a kind of junction where we're going down two different routes using these very high power lasers. So I mentioned petawatt lasers, and they've been available for a few years now. And there's research in developing even higher power lasers. So there's a number of systems throughout the world uh, being commissioned at the moment to generate 10 petawatts. And that is for um, furthering our, you know, kind of what what happens when type research and in fact there's a there's a, a facility being built in china of a hundred petawatts and plans for others around the world so that's one path we can go down increasing the power ever more and trying to see what happens the other one is really a pull from the applications area so you can use these very very short high power laser systems to generate secondary sources. So these could be X-rays, electrons, protons, neutrons. So when these lasers interact with matter, they generate all sorts of secondary sources. And there is a pull from this applications area uh, to use these lasers in medical applications, materials processing, etc. The difference with these lasers or where they're going to have to be developed is that at the moment these petawatt lasers operate at a, a very low cycle rate so once every second or 10 times a second to be useful in these other applications we have to push these lasers to generate at kilohertz repetition rates and so there's a global effort really in trying to develop these systems which are going to be diode pumped and incredibly high repetition rates. So we're not necessarily increasing the power um, for these, but the average power. Okay. So, I mean, obviously these high power lasers, loads of different applications. Is there one that you could pick out as sort of particularly exciting for the future? I think just 
the the fundamental applications what happens next is really exciting mm. with these 10 petawatt lasers coming online so there's one in france one in uh, the czech republic one in hungary one in china uh, so there's laser systems throughout the world are being commissioned at the moment at this 10 petawatt level and nobody's ever seen interactions at these sort of powers and in fact when the 100 petawatt type facilities come online I think that's going to be an amazing um, achievement. Excellent. Finally, I just wanted to ask you about the um, International Day of Light, which is coming up. Um, Were you uh, involved in in organising this? In 2015, uh, UNESCO had the International Year of Light, and that was a really exciting year. And I was on the UK organising committee for that, which was organised through the Institute of Physics. And we planned all sorts of events through the UK, um, from stargazing to using lasers um, to all sorts of applications. Um, And from that International Year of Light, UNESCO invented, if that's the right word, the International Day of Light. And that is held annually on the 16th of May and ties in with my research because it's the anniversary of the first successful operation of the laser in 1960 by Theodore Maiman in the US. Thanks very much for speaking to us today, Colin. Thank you, Tammy. Now I'm joined by my colleagues Tammy Freeman and Margaret Harris to talk about the UNESCO International Day of Light, which is this Sunday, May the 16th. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, Hamish. So, so to start off, uh, Tammy, what, what is the International Day of Light and, and why should we be celebrating it here on Physics World? Well, it all started back in 2015, which was designated as the International Year of Light. And the aim was to celebrate the science of light and improve the public's understanding of light-based technologies. So it was led by UNESCO and it involved activities in 147 countries and had an estimated audience of over 100 million. So following the success of this year of light, it was decided to continue by creating an international day of light. And this day was chosen as May the 16th which is the anniversary of the first successful operation of the laser back in 1960. Oh, okay. So um, in 2021, the the Day of Light um, involves over 50 countries will be hosting events. Virtually or otherwise? Um, I would assume that a lot of it's happening virtually. Um, I had a little look on the website to see what what was going on near us. And there is actually an outdoor photography workshop being held in Bristol. But there's also um, the University of Southampton, for example, is doing an online program about making spectroscopes from using everyday items. And there's also some online lectures and there's a writing workshop. So I think it's, it's a sort of thing that you, you can carry on doing a lot of virtual activities. And, and it sounds like it's not just science then, although, um, you know, that's what we focus on here at Physics World. Yeah, I think it's sort of also to do... Um, the role of light in culture and art and education. I think that it's all included in that as well, yeah. 
So in the podcast, we've already talked about astronomy and, and high-powered lasers as well, but there's so much more to light. Now, now Margaret, you want to highlight um, a recent article that we've published on Physics World about a new technique that allows light waves to penetrate into forbidden regions of a photonic crystal. So, so what's a photonic crystal, and, and why are some parts of it forbidden? Well... Photonic crystals are made by etching patterned nanopores into a substrate such as a silicon wafer. And the way these patterns are designed, they make the crystal's refractive index vary periodically in space. And that's different from a lot of materials. I mean, when you think about refractive index for a lot of listeners, what springs to mind is probably something like light getting bent when it travels from air into a glass of water. Um, mm -hmm. The air has one refractive in index at a particular temperature and pressure and so forth. The glass has another and the water has a third. But in a photonic crystal, this refractive index varies spatially within the same material. And it does so, crucially, on the length scale of a few hundred nanometers, which is similar to the wavelength of visible light. And this periodic variation causes there to be a band gap that affects how light propagates through the crystal. And the physics of this band gap is similar to how band gaps in semiconductors affect the flow of electrons through a semiconductor. And the thing is, in any given photonic crystal, one that's been made with a certain pattern of nanopores, these band gaps mean that, that there are some wavelengths of light that can't propagate at all. It's forbidden. And that turns out to be useful for a lot of optoelectronic applications because it lets you control where the light goes and where it doesn't. And, and so that's why these regions are forbidden. But, but how did the researchers manage to get light into these forbidden parts of the photonic crystal? Well, remember how I said that the crystals are made by etching patterned nanopores into a substrate? So it turns out that although these nanopatterning techniques are very precise, they aren't absolutely perfect. There's always going to be flaws. And the physicists in this study, uh, who are at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, they explain that the disorder that arises from these unavoidable imperfections in the nanofabrication process produces channels that can penetrate very deep into the crystal. And it's possible to steer the trajectory of incoming light waves through these channels, provided you shape the wave fronts of the light to match the shape of the channel, which is what these researchers did. Um, I like to think of it, this may not be a perfect analogy, but if you think of it as being like the final scene in the original Star Wars film, where Luke Skywalker and his mates are all zooming along through cracks in the surface of this otherwise impenetrable Death Star, he finds a crack or a pipe to shoot his torpedo into. And that's, I think, kind of analogous to, um, to what the researchers have done here, although maybe not, not quite so cinematic or as exciting. <laughs> that, well, that, that, that's a great analogy. Um, of course, Star Wars uh, f f famous for the the lightsaber as well. So, um, well, there we go. Yeah. There's another application of light. <laughs> Definitely, a, a lots of days of day of light connections there. So, so Tammy, um, a, a recent Physics World article about indestructible light waves has caught your eye. What, what is an indestructible light wave? Okay, so um, this is a study headed up at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. And basically, the researchers have created a new class of light waves that can pass through a strongly scattering material as if it wasn't there. So usually you'd expect a light wave traveling through a disordered medium to be scattered and deflected and look very different when it emerges. But here, indestructible 
refers to the fact that these waves produce exactly the same pattern, regardless of whether they're propagating through air or through a complex scattering medium. And so how did the researchers do this? Well, they're developing mathematical models that describe how the disordered medium affects the light. And this allows them to create a wave pattern that's affected by the material in a predictable way. And they call these waves scattering invariant modes of light. And they can generate them by sending a laser beam through a specially configured spatial light modulator. And, and so this is, is this just theory or have they actually achieved this in reality? Have, have they built a, a system like this? Yeah. Yeah, they've demonstrated that it works in experiments. Um, so what they did for the scattering material, they used a thin layer of zinc oxide nanopowder on a glass slide. And they first of all, they characterised this material by shining light through it and analysing how the light was scattered by the powder. And they used this to calculate these scattering invariant modes of light. And then to test that it all worked, the team shone um, light through this layer of zinc oxide powder and they used light patterns that resembled constellations, so Ursa Minor and Ursa Major. And what they found was that these um, constellation patterns, so the patterns produced by light traveling through the powder layer, were almost identical to those that were just um, propagating through air. And the only difference was that the light that went through the powder was very slightly attenuated, but the pattern remained the same. And, and so there are, are there any applications for, for this type of light transmission? Um, uh, something that springs to mind is, is imaging. Could, could, you, could you do that with this technique? Yeah, so this is what the researchers suggest, um, that it could be used to improve imaging through complex scattering media. So, for example, um, biomedical applications. Um, this technique could be used to deliver light deeper into the human body than we can currently achieve because um, tissue is highly scattering. Um, the researchers also point out that these um, scattering invariant modes can be created for waves other than visible light, such as sound waves. So there may be some other potential applications there as well. You can read both of these articles on the Physics World website. Just look for the headlines, Shaped Light Waves Penetrate Further Into Photonic Crystals and Indestructible Light Waves Travel Through Opaque Material As If It Isn't There. Thanks, Tammy and Margaret. Cheers, Hamish. Thanks, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Megan Tannock, Colin Danson, Margaret Harris, and Tammy Freeman for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, please do listen to the latest Physics World Stories podcast which explores the tantalizing possibility that Fermilab's muon G-2 experiment has found evidence of a new force. You can find stories in the podcast section of the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World